look at, uh, let's go to the Lord and seek his favor on his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we do ask that your word may be of a lamp to our feet and a light to our path today. As we turn to it again, we see your handiwork, we see your plans for salvation uh, through the son of David, Jesus Christ, coming through already in a shadowy way back in the days of David. We are grateful that you preserved him and that many good things came because of the one who came from him. We're glad and came from you. We pray, Lord, that your spirit may be at work in us as we seek to do your will in our lives. May this scripture and its ministry help us to that end. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to go back to David again and the stories, uh, the exploits, the events that took place back in the days of Saul and David, in Old Testament times in Israel, the kingdom of Israel. 1 Samuel 18 is what we're looking at this morning. We'll read the entire chapter where we hear about a lot of loving going on, a lot of friendship, a lot of uh, attention drawn to David by Jonathan, by the women, by Saul, uh, by the peoples of God then in those days. And this is all in the aftermath of the great deliverance that God um, performed through David in the David and Goliath story in 1 Samuel 17. So let's start with verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 18 as we look at this portion of God's word. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul... Uh, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home and David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand. Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people, and David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. 
And when David saw that, when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. And Saul said to David, Here is my elder son Merab, daughter, excuse me, daughter Merab, and I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives? My father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king. But at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let, him get, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delighted you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. And then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, the king desires no bride prize except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed two hundred of the Philistines. David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, and he might, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when David saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines came out to battle, and often as they came out, as often as they did, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Thank the Lord for the, <clears throat> this portion of his word that we could read. May it indeed be a blessing to our hearts today. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, over the years I've had a chance, and I, I suppose uh, many of you have had that same experience at times, uh, where you've been able to see your boys and girls participating in athletics or in sports. And uh, you boys and girls who, who do that, you know how happy you are when you win, right? I can remember, it's, it doesn't even have to be sports. I can remember my little children and we would play Candyland and they would kind of sometimes stack the deck so that they'd get the cards that they needed to go up the rainbow trail and all of that. And I was always left in the dust and somehow they would win and oh, the joy they had for winning. Now, I don't want you to be cheating and my little boys and little girls who did that, uh, they, they shouldn't have been cheating either. But uh, they got a lot of joy out of, of winning. We don't want to try to win at all costs, though. We don't want to lose friends over winning, burning bridges over it, acting in embarrassing ways because we are so caught up in wanting our team to win. But part of the joy, uh, boys and girls, when we win is, of course, the ability to share that joy with other people. 
If you were to come home, and back in my day, my mom and dad couldn't always come out and watch me play, but I'd come home and they'd ask me how it went, and I would tell them. And it was fun to tell them when I could come home and tell them that we won, and they were very happy for me. They took joy in my joy, and I would have been crushed, I suppose, if they wouldn't have cared at all and even had said, well, I don't really care anything about that. Uh, uh, i got things to do, people to see, places to go, and I don't really care about your joy. But they were never like that. We take joy in other people's joys. And in our passage this morning, we get some different reactions. Some are joyous to God's deliverance, and some are not. Uh, it's God's deliverance over Goliath that's happened through David. And, and we're going to look at four of the different reactions that we see here. And those different reactions remind us really about what can happen today, about how people uh, react to God's victory for us in Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. And it's a variety of ways in which they respond. And it's too bad that it isn't all one joyous response, but that's the way it is. It's sad, but it's true. And as we look at this passage, one of the things we hope to accomplish is to be reminded of how it is that we need to be reacting to God's victory in Christ. So we're going to take a look at those reactions, but we also want to see where we all fit in that boys and girls and the older alike. So let's take a look at those four reactions that we see here. Different people react differently to the goodness and the greatness and the grace of God. Uh, they react differently to his triumph. And uh, we see here a, a shadowed picture of the ultimate victory that happened by the son of David, Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at those reactions. We're looking at Jonathan, the women, Saul, and David. So first of all, we look at Jonathan, because he's the first one up. Uh, Jonathan is strangely absent from the Goliath adventure, and remarkably so, given the fact that he had earlier carried out some David-like uh, uh, deliverances of his own, where the Lord was with him, where he could do many things with uh, a few or a many, and he did that with Jonathan and his servant. But though Jonathan was absent in the Goliath uh, event, He's never, he never speaks anyway. He's now again present in a very faithful, and a very remarkable way. Jonathan, having heard David's conversation and having told, uh, as David has told Saul who he is, that he is the, the son of Jesse, his servant, uh, back in the, the last verse of, of chapter 17, or when Saul asks, whose son are you, young man? And David answers, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Uh, we now have Jonathan on the scene. And having heard that conversation in the aftermath of Goliath, uh, Jonathan acts in a very, very remarkable way here. Uh, he, he's giving away all of his panoply. He, he's giving away all of his his armor, all of his weapons. Uh, it's a remarkable thing. Uh, as Samuel's robe was torn by Saul as he tried to leave him, so also the kingdom is going to be taken from Saul, we remember. 
And that meant that it would not be handed over to Jonathan. So that meant that the royal robe would not be his to wear. But what a, what a submission to the Lord's will here by Jonathan. Instead of insisting on being the anointed, he ends up instead submitting to the anointed. It's certainly friendship, and there's plenty of love going on in this passage, not just between David and Jonathan. We often hear about David and Jonathan and all the love that they have for each other and the covenant he made, but the whole passage is full of love for David. But there's more going on here. Saul tried to give his weapons and clothing to David to take a share in the glory. Jonathan gives his weapons and clothing in tribute to the one who would be king. He submits to the anointed of the Lord. He's willing to become lesser so that David would become greater. Kind of reminds us of John the Baptist and Jesus that way, where Jesus, where, where John says, I have to become less, he has to become more. He loves him as he loves himself. He's willing to surrender his rights for the sake of the Lord's anointed. Catch that. I mean, that's a very great thing to live by in our day. He's willing to surrender his rights for the sake of the Lord's anointed. He's willing to do anything to preserve him and promote him to the point of making a covenant with him, which would mean, in essence, you know, may, may blood be, may, may my blood be shed if I don't show my loyalty to you. But you know, that's what makes, that's what faith makes a person do. Faith submits to Christ. It doesn't submit to the culture, it doesn't submit to the votes, it doesn't submit to the majority. It submits to Christ. Our faith is admission that Christ is greater than we are. That Christ is to become even greater in our lives and in this world. And that we are to become one. And, and that just doesn't fit in our going after number one mentality where we say, no, 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 you know, I'm going to be center stage. I'm going to be front and center. No, no, no. Faith in Christ submits to Christ. And it wants Christ to be great. It doesn't want me to be greater. It is no longer I, but it is Christ who lives in me. It's willing to surrender our rights so that the cause of Christ would not be besmirched, that it would not be thrown in the mud, that it may be advanced. And where is that going to happen? Well, you remember what Jesus had to deal with. He said he had some fellow come to him, right? We, we talked about that a, a while back where the brother comes and says to uh, Jesus, you know, be the, be the go-between between me and my brother because I'm getting ripped off. And Jesus said, who, who made me judge over you? Right? Disputes over money, disputes over inheritance, inheritances, uh, inheritances, right? Take the lesser position. So that the name of Christ won't get thrown in the mud. So that strife won't break out. 
In a world that wants to protest every matter so that they get what they want out of life and yet never get there. They never satisfy. Christians are to rise above that. Christians are to, to show a different way. Christians are to, uh, to rise above for the sake of Jesus. They do that so that people will see that we have greater possessions and honors that we are longing for in heaven as aliens and strangers here on earth. It means rejoicing with those whom the Lord has given much, to be grateful that the lot that has fallen our way has come to us not by chance, but through our faithful Father in heaven who, is, who has all things in his hands, who has me in his hands, the Father who gives us reason to, our, to express our contentment that the world doesn't understand. But God puts us here to express our contentment in many, many ways so that people can say, whoa, this is something different about you. What's making this difference? It is Christ. Because I'm not so worried about my name. I'm worried about the name of Christ. I want Christ to be praised in our lives. So you see the reaction of Jonathan, a very remarkable one. Then you've got the women. And we see them celebrating among themselves, we hear. Now you see this happening, this celebration happening in other parts of the Bible. It was common, evidently, in those days for the women to come out in victory celebration. You, know, you remember the Song of Miriam in the time of, of the Red Sea event. It, it could easily be that as they, they praised Saul and David, they didn't mean any disparity between Saul and David. Now Saul took it that way, but it may not have been that they were trying to to push that. It was common for second lines uh, of, of songs and poems to magnify numbers. It was kind of a poetical device. Or like when you would read something, say, well, five, you'll read in the Proverbs, some five things are like this. Six, in fact, right? Just kind of get your attention on this. This is something to listen to, right? Something to emphasize. And after all, Saul's mentioned first here. David's not mentioned first. It's Saul's mentioned first. Nevertheless, the people love David. You don't hear about them loving Saul. They love David. And however it was that it was meant, Saul was not happy. But what's odd is that they come out to celebrate, but unlike like what you might hear from the Song of Miriam, for instance, there isn't any mention of the Lord in their celebration at all. Did not David, after all, say that this victory was to occur, his purpose, what was, what was he trying to accomplish? So that people would know that there was a God in Israel. It was not so that David could be known as the one who slays his ten thousands. As we'll see in a moment, you know, David is content to be identified as the son of Jesse, the servant of Saul. We find no mention, though, of the Lord in these celebrations. It's just the praise of men. Now, was the, was the joy they gave unwarranted? Well, we, we cheer our heroes, don't we? We just talked a little bit about that. You know, we're, we take joy in, in what we're able to accomplish or what we see in the arena, things people can do that we can't. That's why we, we, we take a, uh, an interest in those sort of things. But the sad thing is when 
this is the only celebration that we know. These are the only heroes that we see. And that's the truth in our society often. The only heroes people see are heroes that are not necessarily heroes of faith. This becomes the extent of people's idea of worship and praise. It doesn't go any farther than that. In fact, their enthusiasm for those kind of heroes can overwhelm the kind of enthusiasm that really needs to be directed toward the Lord. But this is where people's money and celebration is, is centered. And that's sad. Because where's the joy? Where's the joy of the Lord? The victories of the arena are but temporary, but the victory of the Lord is forever. And, and you don't have to pay to join in the celebration. Nothing deserves praise more than the victory of the Lord. Even when it comes to the other victories of life, where do they come from? But, but were it not from the power of the Lord? You know, we easily see our own power and the power of other people instead of the power behind the power. How can we all grow in living by faith and not by sight? I mean, how we can, I mean, what I meant to say was how we can all grow in living by faith and not by sight this way so that the Lord gets his just and deserved praise because the battle and the victory and the victories that we know in life belong to him by his power by his grace, by his working in our lives, by his spirit and his Christ and his providence. So we see the see Jonathan, we see the women, and then there's Saul. And Saul's a sad picture. If the women are joyous, Saul's sad. Saul's displaying the departure of the Lord in his life. He knows that. You can see that David has the presence of God and Saul does not. Again, where do you see his praise of the Lord in this? He doesn't take any joy in the deliverance of the Lord. He, he should be happy. A crisis has been averted. He should be glad that the crisis has passed and, and praise God for it. But there isn't a drop of joy in Saul's life. Not a drop. It's all phony. Whatever he might show of delight, it's all phony. He, he should be happy, but he's not. He, he cannot rejoice with those who rejoice. He can't. He can't rejoice in the success of others, and there's plenty of it for David. Nor is there any joy for those in the kingdom who share in this deliverance and who, who take joy in the joy. They love David. Saul hates him. What a sad display of Saul. The pitfalls of, of human frailty are plaguing him now. Everything has to rest on himself because he doesn't have the Lord. His manipulating, his scheming, his honor, his concerns, right? He's afraid of what he's going to lose. He hasn't realized how much he's already lost. He's lost the, the biggest things of all. But he's afraid he's going to lose his kingdom. Well, he's already lost that. He, he really has no concern for the 
people. He sends David out with ulterior motives to be killed in battle. Not to be the leader of his people. He hears the women singing and he automatically takes offense. That's where his default is. That's where he falls, he falls into that category right away. He's so insecure, but he's got reason to be. Because the Lord has departed from him and he's on his own. He's jealous of David. He's not happy for him. And that, of course, right away shows a lack of faith in the Lord and his presence and his care. Because if jealousy is our lifestyle, whoever we might be, then we are confessing with that lifestyle that what the Lord can provide and what he promises is, is just not enough. If we don't know the Lord, jealousy can easily raise its ugly head. Because we, we don't believe there can be someone who will take care of us every step of the way and we don't, have, we don't need to be jealous. If we're jealous... We're just worried about our own honor anyway, and not the honor of the Lord. You know, if we don't believe that the Lord is leading our lives, or, or if the Lord is absent from us, then we become manipulators. We want to be the ones that are sovereign. We want to be the ones that are controlling the situation. Uh, this is what Saul's trying to do. You try to become the controller of events through wicked deeds designed for a desired effect, instead of following the Lord and letting Him control the outcome. Now, when the Lord is absent from us, paranoia, right, unjustified fear, can easily step in to fill the void. Saul becomes fearful of David. Because everything's working out for David. And everything's working poorly for Saul. And you can easily believe that everything is out to get you. The whole world's against you. You probably know people like that. I know I know people like that. Talk to them on the phone, and everything's against them. The whole world is against them can easily believe that everything is out to get you when the Lord isn't your protector because you don't have the Lord's protection and you don't want it. When the Lord is absent, you do the absurd. Saul had figured out that, that this is the one that's going to take his throne. Evidently, evidently, this is one of the reasons he asks about David's heritage. Who are you? That, that last verse in verse 17. As he sees the continued success of David, he tries to foil the plans of the Lord by having him killed. One way or the other. This is as absurd as people trying to kill the Christian mission today. You know, it seems as if the powers of the world could kill off the Christian mission, uh, maybe by entertainment, entertaining people to death, persecution, error in doctrine, and so the you know the church is in, is, uh, is attacked that way. It's in contrast to the culture of the world, but 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 you can't do it. You know Saul can't do it. He tries, but the Lord's in the midst. The Lord is faithful. The Lord's promises stand sure. He's going to bring a savior through Judah. He's going to bring it through Bethlehem. 
He's not going to bring it through Benjamin, which is where Saul was from. He's going to bring it through Bethlehem. He's going to bring it through Judah. He's going to bring it through David. And trying to work against that plan is futile. It will not end in the success that David knows, but the futility and the failure that Saul knew. You, you're, you're working up against the Lord, the kings of the earth, uh, taking pot shots at God and his Christ. God laughs at that. It's like the failure of Saul trying to pin David to the wall. And he misses both times, and then he sends them out to battle. You know, those who are against Christ, don't envy them. Failure follows those who fail to follow Christ. But that isn't true for those who follow him. Saul is a pathetic figure, and, and we don't want to be found in his camp. Then there's David's reaction. David stays constant here. At this point, he doesn't become proud of his actions. He, he continues in his praise of the Lord as he plays his instrument, as was his custom. He doesn't get a big head with the successes that he knows. The glory continues to go to the Lord, who must also receive glory for any successes we know, but which can so easily be lost when we have smelled the, the sweet smell of success or power or popularity in our lives that can go to our heads. But David carries himself with humility. He identifies himself with his father, with Jesse, with the line of the promise. He calls Jesse the servant of Saul. He carries himself with humility. And if he's the son of Jesse and Jesse's the servant of Saul, then that makes David the servant of Saul. He's loyal to family. He identifies himself with his family. He identifies himself that way, and he's respectful. He understands his humble family ties. He, he identifies with those. He, he considers himself but just a poor man from an obscure clan. While at the same time, he remembers, he remains loyal and respectful to the authority that the Lord has allowed to reign until things change. But in everything, David is continuing to show the presence of the Lord in his life. And that's underscored here. We hear that all the time. He continues to fight the battles of the Lord. It's also, well, I'm going to send you out and fight the battles of the Lord. He didn't really care about that, but he was. That's what he was doing. He continues to submit himself to the powers that be. He continues to be an asset to God's people. As our text shows throughout, they loved him. He was highly esteemed. And unlike Saul, David, as a type of Christ, continues to live and serve the Lord and his people. It's a Christ-like way. And the people are blessed through that humility through that humble service. And of course, that's what Jesus did for us, didn't he? His humble service meant we would be blessed and not cursed. And we esteem him for that. 
As we're called to imitate our Savior, we need that kind of vision too, don't we? Every day. Our lives are indeed times in which we fight the good fight of faith. And it's not to win the, the victory that only Christ could win, but, but to, to persevere and overcome in the faith the Lord has called us to profess. To not let go of that. And, and to persevere and overcome in the midst of whatever it is that we have to face. It might just be the everyday, doing your work, getting up in the morning, doing what you're supposed to do, or, or when you're challenged by your faith, uh, for your faith. Or when you're tempted to, to throw it all away because you figure, look at the way the world lives. But when we persevere, when we follow Christ's ways, what we'll find we will be. Just like David, just like Christ, we'll be an asset to God's people. When we're Christians, we need to ask ourselves, are we an asset you know, to God's people? When we think about the great deliverance that God has given to us in Christ, do we wish, is it our wish, for people to be able to see in ourselves, the Lord's with him. The Lord's with them. Right? Or will absence be our mark? So how will we respond to the Lord's deliverance in Christ? In David's day, it was, it was varied. In our day, it's varied too. It is. Jonathan, for Jonathan, it was a humbling submission. He wanted Christ to become greater and he wanted him to be lesser. For the women, there's joy. But God's missing in it. If God's missing in our joy or if we can only rejoice in our earthly victories, then we're missing out on the greatest of joys which only the gospel of Jesus Christ can provide. Of course, there's Saul, who doesn't know any joy because he's resting on himself and he's become a picture of the sad situation that besets all those who can find no joy, no value, no appreciation in God's deliverance personally or when they see it in the lives of other people. And then you got David. He's a type of Christ to serve the Lord and his people. He's a praise to God and he's an asset to others. And you find all those reactions today in people's lives to God's victory. You can find, find them all. May we find that God's deliverance in Christ is a joy for us. So that God might receive the praise in our lives. And so that it would be in our heart to be an asset to other people. Because we've known how God has been an asset to us delivering us from our sin, from Satan and death, through the work, the blood, and the resurrection of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the opportunity that's been given to us again to receive your word. May it be a word that where we can see ourselves somewhere in it. Our calling to respond to the great deliverances of God the victories that Jesus Christ gives so that we might be the kind of people then who are submissive 
and submissive to Christ, humble, as David himself pictured the Christ who himself praised his God and was an asset to people of all tribes and kindreds. Thank you, Lord, for the great deliverance that Jesus Christ brings, and may we respond to it in joy always. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.